Amen. Okay, so we're going to begin in the book of Ezra. That's going to be our basic text. When we end up, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, but Ezra is where we're going to start. Ezra 7, 1 through 10. After these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom. And we'll just jump down here to verse number 6. Uh, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Okay, a lot of stuff in there. And you're probably thinking, I don't get all that. Uh, we're going to try to help you with that. So first of all, as an introduction, we need to understand that the descendants of Abraham, whom God first began to call to go to a land, he was going to show him. God promised that Abraham would have a multitude uh, of descendants after him. The descendants of Abraham eventually became the nation of Israel. Through them, um, God was working to bring forth a people who would, in covenant with him, reflect the nature of God and bring the values and purposes of God and the kingdom of God to bear in this earth. Throughout the centuries, these people, we would, uh, the people of God would cycle through times of great devotion and victory, and then they would go through times of rebellion, idolatry, and defeat. Across their history, we see that God delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt into the promised land, and he eventually established through them a place of worship in the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, and he built up that city from where they would govern and bring God's will to bear in the land of Israel, and God's desire was that they would be a light to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, we also see through their history, as we said before, a repetitive, a repetitive cycle of rebellion and idolatry. In his mercy, God continued to send his prophets to call the people back to himself. Sadly, as a result of their continued callousness and rebellion toward God, they ultimately found themselves captive to the nation of Babylon. Uh, the walls of the city they built were torn down. The temple they built was destroyed. They were taken as slaves to the, uh, uh, to the, to the Babylonians and, and taken as uh, uh, captives to the Babylonian Empire where they would spend uh, the next 100 or 200 years. Thankfully, God, uh, actually the, the next 70 years. Thankfully, God did not leave things as they were. He would once again show himself strong towards his people as he began the process of restoring them to himself and to his purposes. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet prophesied before they were taken fully captive that God was already working towards their restoration. You have very familiar passages of Scripture. You may never have known the context. This is the context. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, as they were being taken captive, he says to them, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Uh, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I caused you to be carried away 
captive. Now that's kind of the background for our text. I know there's quite a lot there, but I wanted to give you a good context of where we're going. So first of all, let's look at what preceded our text. Okay, so um, restoring the worship is the first point we're going to be look at, uh, looking at this morning. In Ezra 1, 1 through 4, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah, that that word Jeremiah gave might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among uh, you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So again, let me give you a little bit, uh, uh, one more time, context here. Israel had been taken captive by Babylon. God had prophesied through Jeremiah that after 70 years, he was going to bring them back. Remember, everything was lost. The temple was lost. The city was torn down. The Israelites were taken out of their uh, land. And now God is beginning after 70 years to fulfill the promise made, the prophecy made by Jeremiah. Uh, He raises up a king in Babylon by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus says, I want the Israelites that are in my kingdom in Babylon to have been free to go back and rebuild all right and so that's what he's making the proclamation it's an official proclamation for the Israelites to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God what you're going to notice is as we continue on through the study is that the restoration of Israel which is beginning here is not a one-time thing it's not once and done It is, in fact, a process. Can you say process with me? Process. So God begins the process of restoration with the sending forth of his people out of the land of Babylon where they were captive and back into the land of promise. Okay? He begins by sending the people who had been taken captive into Babylon out of Babylon back to Jerusalem back to the land of Israel, back to Canaan, but for our uh, uh, understanding of where we're going, back to the land of promise. In Ezra 1, 1 through 4, again, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. So what we see in this passage of Scripture is that their mission from the proclamation that Cyrus is giving, their directive was to go back to Jerusalem, and in that city they were to build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Now, here's what's an interesting fact, is that out of all the Jews that were in Babylon, not a lot of them went back. A lot of them were very comfortable. They had already built lives after 70 years. A couple of generations have lived in Babylon, and they did not want to go back. Some did, and we're going to be looking at those that did. But not all went back, but the ones that did, when they arrived, remember their task is to build the house of God, to rebuild the temple. But the first thing they did in doing that was to rebuild the altar. 
They rebuilt the altar. And now we want to look at this morning, well, what does that mean to me? What is an altar? Why, why is that important? Well, thank you for asking. Let's go this morning. Let's see if we can figure that out. In Ezra 3, 1 through 6, when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So these are the ones that already went back. They're already living in the land. And on the seventh month, they came to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, and, and uh, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written in the word of the Lord and they offer the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance in the law of Moses for each day. Afterwards, they offer the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for the, all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Now, what we see is that upon their arrival, the Israelites built, rebuilt the altar and began to worship the Lord in the land in the presence of the enemies of God. They're in the presence of the enemies of God, but they have a directive to go back to the land to build the temple, but the first thing they do while the enemies are there, threatening them, uh, trying to stop them from doing what they have a commission from God through Cyrus to do, but they do it anyway, is they build an altar. Now, why is the altar important? What does the altar represent? Well, primarily, the altar is the place where they would bring the sacrifices and offer them to God. It is the place where the Israelites brought their substitute offerings on behalf of their sins and their transgressions. It is the place where God meets with them and accepts their sacrifices and where reconciliation between God and his people is established. Okay? So there is something, and we'll get into this in a minute, but I think, I think let me make this a little simpler for you. The Bible says in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right? Sin is a violation of, uh, of what God deems is right and proper. God actually has standards. I don't know if you know that. God is a righteous God. He is a holy God. He created all of us, each and every one of us. We are his creation. Now, depending on how you were taught, depending on how uh, you were reared, you might not have any concept of that. You might think that you came from an ape or from an amoeba. But the Bible teaches that we were created by Almighty God and we were created in the image and the likeness of God. If you want to believe that you came from a monkey, you're welcome to, but I prefer the second. I prefer to believe that I was created on purpose, with a purpose, by Almighty God. Amen? And I think it takes more faith to believe that something as orderly and as incredibly put together as a human being and all the, 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 the incredible intricacies of a, of a, of a creation, uh, I think it takes more faith to believe that we evolved than that we were created by a, a designer who purposely uh, built us in his image and his likeness. All right? 
Because some people say, well, science teaches us. Well, science actually doesn't teach that. Science uh, finds what God has created, and it leads us to the Creator. But there is a religion that is partnered with science that wants to teach us something other than what God designed us to be. Okay? It's a belief system. I believe in science. Uh, the world believes in science, but how you interpret what you read, what you see, what's been uh, 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 given comes through a lens, and that lens is either one that I've been created in the image of God or the other lens is there is no God. All right? I choose to believe that God created us in his image, in his likeness, uh, but at the very beginning, we all came from Adam. Adam transgressed the, the law of God, the word of God, and, and when he transgressed the word of God, the Bible says he sinned, and because we came from Adam, we all have the propensity to sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's the problem. The wages of sin is death. Death is separation from life. God is life. When Adam sinned, he was separated from God. In our sinfulness, we are separated from God. God's desire is not that we be separated from him. God's desire is that we be reconciled to him. In order for us to be reconciled to God, we've got to deal with the issue that separated us from him and that sin. So in the Old Testament, God created a system of sacrifices that where we were able to offer an innocent animal, an innocent blood, and that would cover over our sins. And that was where the altar uh, was created, and at the altar, that's where they would offer the sacrifice. And you might say to yourself, well, that's not fair to the animal. What's not fair to the animal is that we sinned, and we had dominion over the animal. It's not God. It's us that created that system, right? God, in his mercy, created a way for us to continue to have a relationship with him through the sacrifices of bulls and rams. And at the altar is where those sacrifices were given, at the altar is where we were able to reconcile with God. Am I making sense to you? So now, with that in mind, the three things that are imperative for New Testament Christians to know about the sacrifice is, first of all, Christ is our sacrificial lamb once and for all. They no longer have to have sacrifices of goats and lambs because Jesus became the sacrificial lamb that once and for all paid the price for us to be able to reconcile with God and deal with sin. Okay? So Christ is our sacrificial lamb, and it's through his work on the cross that we receive remission or forgiveness of sins and reestablish a relationship with God our Father. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and that's every one of us that doesn't know, know God, that doesn't have a relationship with God, that, does, that is never called upon the name of the Lord in Christ. Now listen, I want to say this right here because it's important. Buddha cannot get you to God, right? Uh, uh, Confucius cannot get you to God. New Age teachings cannot get you to God. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except through me. There's a lot of people that today say, well, I'm spiritual, but your spirituality is not going to connect you with God. The only thing it's going to connect you with is a demon. 
There is a demonic world out there that would like nothing more than to, for you to believe that if you connect with them, you're connecting with God, but you're not. There's only one way to connect with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. All right? It's good that you're spiritual, but in your spirituality, I'm telling you this morning that there's only one road, and that's through Jesus. All right? So, uh, for he himself is our peace who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile, in other words, all of humanity, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were far off, which is the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, for through him through Christ we both have access by one spirit to the father there's only one way to the father that's through Jesus Christ second in response to God's grace and mercy that was shown us through the work of Christ at the cross we offer ourselves up to God as living sacrifices now, we're not talking about uh, we build an altar and we create a fire and you go and you walk through the fire. We're not talking about that. That's just plain stupid. Okay, what we're talking about here is metaphorical. It is a type because of what Christ did through at the cross of Calvary. We in turn offer ourselves up to God as not dead sacrifices, but living sacrifices. Romans 12 and run, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, he's talking to the people of God that know Christ, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, why would you do anything else after all that Christ has done for you? The idea that you can be a Christian and live sinfully is, is not from God. It is a product and it is a lie of the enemy. You are a Christian. You are separated to God to live holy and righteous. That doesn't mean you put your head in a bun, your hair in a bun. It doesn't mean you wear a mini skirt. I mean, uh, you wear a long skirt. You wear no makeup. It doesn't mean that at all. It means you live in such a way that God's nature and character is reflected in you. Right? There are too many Christians today, they want to know, what do I have to do? What's the least amount I can do and be a Christian? In other words, if you flip it around, they're saying, what's the most sin I can do and still get to heaven? That is not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian, just like Bobby said before, I was all in in the world. And when I become a Christian, I become all in for God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So third... We offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, which simply stated are the works that we do as we walk out this life of loving service to God. This is what the altar represents. 1 Peter 2 and 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a pro holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God to God through Jesus Christ. So first of all, it's you. Second of all, it's uh, offering yourself, I mean, it's reconciliation through Christ, and then it's offering yourself to live a life of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, in partnership with God, holy, separated, in loving relationship, walking out uh, relationship with God. And third, it's doing the things that you do that bring glory to God. The altar represents all of that. Okay, with that understanding in mind, when we go back to our text, what happened at the altar is when the sacrifices were placed on it, they were consumed by fire. It wasn't a matchlight fire. 
It wasn't a fire that was started with some kind of carbon stick and people were, it wasn't that, it wasn't a castaway fire where he was doing this or he was doing, that's not the kind of fire. It was the fire of God. It was a fire that came from heaven itself. And it's important to clarify something here. Fire and light to us are two different things. I want light, I flip a switch. I want heat, I start a fire. In the in biblical days, you didn't have two different forms. You had fire, which was light, and you had light, which was fire. It was one and the same. In the Bible, fire was light, light was fire, and the Bible teaches us that God is light. First John 1 and 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So when the fire of God fell, I submit to you that it was a visible demonstration or manifestation of the presence of God coming upon the sacrifices. In short, through the sacrifices, the way was prepared for God's presence to come. Let me say it again. Through the sacrifices to deal with the sins of the people, through the sacrifices, God consumed the sacrifices and his presence manifested. And so we see a manifestation of the presence of God because of the altar. So, uh, uh, in short, through the sacrifices, the way was prepared for God's presence to come among the people. Leviticus 9, 6 through 7. Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do. And the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, make atonement for yourself and the people, offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And if you were jump down to verse 22, it says, Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. What I'm trying to get you to understand is when the fire fell, the presence of God manifested. How? Fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So at the altar, in restoring the altar, Altar, the Israelites were appropriating God's provision for a restoration of their relationship with God, and as a result, God's presence was free to manifest among the people. So why didn't you just say that at first? Because i got to start with the Bible. It's got to be biblical. I can't just say something. It's got to be biblical. It's got to be proven. It's got it's to have its basis and in fact, its foundation in the Word of God. Listen, I won't change your life. The Bible will change your life. My words won't change your life. It's the Word of God that we speak, the Word of God that we proclaim and declare. When it's in agreement with this Word, that Word will change your life. I'm not asking you to buy into me. I'm asking you to buy into God and His Word. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, bringing it to today, prepared the way for the presence of God to manifest and ultimately dwell among his people. Wait a minute. You're bringing this to today? Yes, I am. John 15 and 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
Jesus actually said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus came to give his life for you and me. To give his life for his creation, which he loves. Right? He loves humanity and that he wanted to create a way to reconcile God himself and humanity. And the way he did that was by giving his life as an eternal, forever, once and for all sacrifice. And through the blood of Jesus, we have now a way to reconcile with God and for the presence of God to indwell us, his people. The Bible says that he that knew no sin, Jesus... This is important. It's important that you understand that Jesus was not a man and became divine. Jesus was God who became a man. He was always in relationship with the Father. He was always without sin. He was 100% human. That's why the virgin birth was important because he was born of a human mother. But his Father was God Almighty, the Spirit of God. So when he manifested on this planet, he was just like you and I. He was 100% human, but you said he's God. He did, but the Bible says he left his deity aside in Philippians chapter 2. In other words, everything he did on this planet, he didn't do as God, he did as a man. But what's important is that when he was born, he was born without sin. And he lived his entire life without sin. Now remember, the Bible says the wages of Sin is death. There was no reason for Jesus to lose his life. There was nothing in this world that could take his life from him because it's the wages of sin is death and Jesus had no sin. He that knew no sin, but here's the thing, he knew that he was born to be a sacrifice for you and I. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were intended to to teach us what Jesus Christ would ultimately do for you and I. He willingly laid his life upon the altar, not having sin, not needing to do that. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let me paint it this way. He had on, the whole time he was here, we're going to use a metaphorical type, his garment was a robe of righteousness. Righteousness just means that which is right in the eyes of God. He was pure. He was undefiled. He was in right relationship with God, manifested by his robe of righteousness, right? And then we, the human race, we are also clothed, but the Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. You can't stand in the presence of God with sin, with filthy rags. You cannot do that. Well, how am I going to reconcile with God? There was no way except for Christ to say, I'm going to take your robes of righteousness willingly and put it on myself and I'm going to take my robe of righteousness for all who will believe in me and call upon me and the work that I do. I will take my robe and put it upon you. It's like children that are adopted into the family. It's done by the goodwill of the parents. It's not the kids. It's the parents that choose to adopt the children. They don't deserve it, uh, and we're not saying that it's not a good thing. I'm just saying it's out of the mercy and the grace and the love of the parents that come and say, I'm going to make a way for you to become a part of our family. I know I was adopted by my father. 
right, by the mercy and the love and the grace that was demonstrated to me by my father. I had a home. I had a family. And by the mercy, the grace, and the love of God who actually died on our behalf, he reconciled you to God. If you call upon him through the blood of Jesus, you can be reconciled and you can become a part of the family of God. But you've got to call on him. You've got to believe in the work that he did. You can't just say, okay, well, I'll, you know, Jesus is good. I'll add Jesus, Jesus into my yoga. Uh-uh. You've got to forsake all and embrace him. See, a lot of people, they want to embrace Christ and forsake none. Or they want to embrace Christ and forsake some. But Christianity doesn't work that way. I am the Lord thy God, and you shall have no other gods before me. You must, you must uh, forsake all to embrace him, right? What did Paul say? Uh, uh, Paul says, uh, Galatians 2 and 20, For it is no longer I that live, but Christ in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith uh, 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 in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? Uh, I died... And uh, to myself, to my old way of life, and I'm alive in Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. In response to his sacrificial love, uh, life that was, that was sacrificed for us, to his sacrifice of love for us in love, we who have appropriated his work on the cross to ourselves now offer ourselves to God, and consecrate ourselves to him to demonstrate the goodness of God through the works that we do. I am so overwhelmed by his love that forgave me, healed me, restored me, filled me, because see, Here's something you don't understand. God didn't just reconcile with you. He actually took up residence inside of you. He lives in us. If you have embraced Christ and you call on him and you believe in him, not only are your sins are forgiven, but God actually takes up residence inside of you. How does he do that? I don't know. I wish I didn't know. I just know it's true. He lives in me and you individually, but he lives in us corporately. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God lives inside of us, right? And in response to that love and that mercy that did so much for me, how can I not want to, out of love, do all that I can for him? Ex love can be extravagant. It's like the woman who was forgiven so much. She was a prostitute, and she came to Jesus, and she poured out a huge token offering of incense upon him, perfume, I think is what they called it. And people around them, they were, they were incensed that they would, they would waste such a thing on Jesus. So you could have sold that, and you could have done so much more. And Jesus said, hey, hey, 
You don't know what's going on with this woman. I know what's going on with this woman. You didn't do anything for me. And then he turns to Simon and he tries to teach him a lesson. He said, who loves more, one who's been forgiven little or one who's been forgiven much? And he said, well, I guess the one that's been forgiven much. He said, you didn't do much for me when I came in this house. And what was he implying? Because in your mind, you were forgiven little. But this woman knows she was forgiven much. And in response to that, she has given back to me extravagantly. Leave her alone. And I believe when we get a grasp, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you grew up in the world, if you were the farthest and deepest uh, away from God, the darkest sinner, or if you were uh, in the house of God but you still weren't in right relationship with God, it doesn't matter. Every one of us received extravagant grace. And if we don't come to the understanding that it doesn't matter how close I was to the church or how close I was growing up, that I was lost, going to hell, dying, uh, 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 deserving of eternal punishment because I didn't reconcile with God. I didn't accept God. But God in His mercy saw me, died for me, gave His life for me, that if I called on Him, I might become reconciled to Him. It doesn't matter how close you were, how far you were, we've all received extravagant mercy and grace. And every one of us should uh, recognize that the love of God, that love that was extravagantly poured out upon us uh, in response deserves an extravagant response of love. Thank you for what you've done for me. Now, come with me while I go to the bars. Come with me while I go and, and, and live in sin with my live-in. Or I, I go, uh, uh, you know, uh, I go party and, 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 and do the things that I did before I ever became a Christian. Come on, Jesus, you and me, we're just, I'm going to show everybody, you know. Uh, no. No. You see, you got Christianity wrong. You think that getting saved is Jesus coming into your life. But it's not that way. Getting saved is you giving up your life for Him. He that would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Greatest form of idolatry in the modern society, the Western modern society, and I'll just speak about the United States, is not a Buddha in the corner or it's not, uh, you know, some other idol in the corner. It's when you look in the mirror and you look at yourself. We sit on the throne of our life and that throne belongs to one and only, and that's God. And until we're willing to get off the throne and let God sit on the throne, even though we might get to heaven one day, we're still living a second, third, fourth class Christian life. We're living far below what God would want. We will not manifest the life and the power of God that God wants to manifest in our life because we are not letting him sit on the throne of our life. We don't just confess that he is Savior. We confess that he is Lord. And if you want to experience the promises of God in your life, you have to submit. Bad word today. Submit is a four-letter word today. You've got to submit your desires, your wills for His. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to take up His will. Jesus said, I would not, I wish this cup could pass upon me. But then He said, but not my will, but your will be done. 
2 Corinthians 5, 15, we'll just add a few scriptures here. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You, those that have, uh, are now in Christ, are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see, not your sins, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Are you doing any good works? Isaiah 61 through 3, God says, Arise and shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, we began this process called restoring the people of God by talking about how uh, Cyrus made a decree after being in captivity for 70 years for the people to go back and restore the temple. And what we looked at today is the beginning of the process is they restored the altar. And the bottom line is the altar is where reconciliation took place. Our text picked up the Israelite situation as captives to the enemy of God's people. In his mercy, God did not leave them as they were. He began the process of restoration. The beginning was releasing them to go back and rebuild the temple. And the first stage of that process was to restore the altar. In restoring the altar, and what we're going to look at in the next coming weeks is going to subsequently, they're going to restore the temple. Uh, The Israelites were restoring their relationship with God. And with the restoration came the manifestation of God's presence, God dwelling in the midst of his people. Jeremiah 31 through 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. It's the covenant that we're a part of now. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In response to his sacrifice of love for us, in love, we offer ourselves to God, give ourselves to him to demonstrate the goodness of God through the works that we do. Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, okay, wait, you just said uh, we got to just demonstrate the works of God. But here it says not of works. No, you don't get saved by your works. You get saved because of his work. But you don't get saved not to work. You get saved to do the work of God. So well, prove it to me. Thank you. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Remember, you're a new creation in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so I'm not going to sum everything up today because, like I said, I'm used to doing that because I teach once and done on a topic and I do something different the next week. This is the first time I'm trying to do things in a series. But what I want you to glean from today is that the first part of of restoration is reconciliation with God. It's restoring the relationship with God. And that doesn't mean just going to church because you can go to church and have no relationship with God. You can have an altar and put a sacrifice on the altar and not have any fire. You're just going through the religious motions, right? You've got your part to do, and in response to it, God does his part. What we're talking about is restoration of relationship. 
Through Jesus Christ, we get saved and the presence of God resides in us. We are new creations in Christ. So if you really want to see lasting change in your life, it begins by reconciling with God, by embracing God's work through Christ on the cross of Calvary, by by asking him to forgive you of your sins and embracing his work and calling on him, not just as Savior, but as Lord. Not inviting him into your life, but you giving your life to him.